What's the story concerning the ambulance? Oh, well, after about two years of trying to really break into big-time radio, I suddenly got myself two jobs in one day. And the times overlapped, and it never occurred to me to give one of them up. You know, the gods didn't want me to have this bounty. They wouldn't have offered it to me. So I accepted it, and then I realized the problem afterwards. I had about seven minutes to get across town in New York from Madison Avenue CBS to WHN, which was at 46th Street and Broadway. I timed myself running, <laughs> and it didn't make it. So I decided I'd hire an ambulance. I got an ambulance number from the yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked them how much they'd charge, and they said $12 if you're an invalid, $15 if you're not. So why the difference? Is it because it's against the law to carry you if you're not an invalid. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a wild ride. The ambulance was waiting for me, and I tipped the elevator man on both buildings, you know, in advance. Uh, I ran out of the studio. When I finished, it was Merton Marge, the CBS show. The elevator wasn't there, and I nearly broke my thumb pressing the down button. Every second was precious. You Certainly. Know. So there are the ambulance guys waiting for me. And he says, look, now, I can take a chance on going across town. It's a much shorter distance. But I might get caught in traffic even with my siren. Or I can go up Madison Avenue and across 57th Street where it's wide and I can come down that way. It'll take a little longer. I mean, it'll, it'll be shorter even though it seems long, it'll be a longer route. So I said, all right, go that way. And he started the uh, siren screaming and, and then the siren broke down and <laughs> turned into around 7th Avenue, 57th Street. And he said, I can get out and fix it, but it'll take about a minute. And he said, I said go ahead, go on right through, you know. <laughs> so he went right through and... The, Cars were jamming on their brakes, you know, <laughs> to avoid collisions. I got there and I ran out of the ambulance, which was a strange sight for the passers-by <laughs> there. And I would think I was running from an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> the elevator was waiting for me there, and I uh, got in and uh, took me up. And I just had time to take one gulp of breath and speak. But it taught me a lesson never to try anything like that again. <laughs> Actually, I lost money on the deal after paying for a standing. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a challenge. In just a moment, keys to the capital. But first, monitor. Going places and doing things. This weekend, all weekend. Yes, from early Saturday morning to late Sunday night, Monitor, NBC's big new radio service, keeps you in touch with the entire world, filling your idle hours and busy hours with entertainment. Monitor is as near as the radio by your side. Why not make this weekend a very special time of travel, fun, and excitement with NBC's Monitor. As network radio entered the fall of 1955, it found itself deep in a period of programming transition. What's going on in Washington? NBC's entire primetime block now featured just six original dramatic radio shows. Now it's guilt by kinship. The highest rated primetime show on the air was CBS's Our Miss Brooks, with an official rating of 4.3. And this was really the beginning of the end for radio as we knew it, John. Did you recognize that early? Oh, yes. Yes. For example, I remember going out to Chicago to record a show with Jimmy Durante and Don Amici when they were happened to be in Chicago and, you know, close enough so that I could go out by train and spend the night and then come back the next night. Mm -hmm. Coming through Pennsylvania at this time, I noticed these 
houses, all with the television antennas. Everywhere you looked. And I suddenly realized, I better get out of radio. Because here it is, even out here like Johnstown and places like that, the houses uh, way down the valley had tall antennas and the ones up high had short ones, but they were everywhere. And all of a sudden, uh, radio was slackening up and uh, whether you like television or not, you had to get into it if you wanted to keep on working. However, America was on the go and radio ratings didn't encompass mobile listeners. During primetime hours, they added somewhere between 40 and 50 percent to traditional audiences. That meant our Miss Brooks's 4.3 rating was actually closer to 6.5. It didn't help that ABC, CBS, and NBC spent much more time promoting TV than radio. But television's production costs were much higher, and fresh off the heels of the launch of Monitor, NBC Radio wasn't ready to give up on drama. Enter NBC staff writer Ernest Canoy. I had worked at the Columbia University radio station, the college radio station, before World War II and after. When you worked there, you did everything. You wrote, you directed, you did the sound, you were the engineer, absolutely everything. And in a sense, I think probably you could say I majored at the college radio station at Columbia. When I came back and was just finishing, Columbia had made an arrangement with NBC to uh, give courses, and NBC people gave it. And I took a couple of courses down there at NBC uh, in writing and dramatic, and radio was it then. There was no television. And I got a telephone call offering me a job working on the staff, and I could see no reason why not. And I wandered into it, and indeed, the first thing that happened to me as I walked in, this is, I don't know, 21 or 2 something, was I was handed uh, the job of doing a six-part adaptation of Dickens' Great Expectations. (laughs) And it went on like that. It was marvelous training, because every week you had something to do. You didn't have to wander around wondering who would give you the opportunity to do something. Five years earlier, NBC debuted a wonder of a science fiction show called Dimension X. Adventures in time and space, told in future tense. Dimension X. Can you predict the future? Can you tell what will happen in a hundred years? Or in ten? Or in the next minute? Can you look beyond the known dimensions of time and space into the unknown, Dimension X? Three sound effects men worked each show, produced in a huge two-story studio, giving the crew the ability to obtain tremendous echo effects. It blended futuristic organ scores with the dark tones of host narrator Norman Rose. In a room, there was a knock on the door. I came into the office. Now, later on, I did work at home and came into the office, wandered around. But that was much later when I was really doing more. At the beginning, all of NBC's sustaining dramatic programs were written by the staff. 
and you did it in the office under the supervision of the editor, and that was it. So you worked very hard and turned out one, two scripts a week. Sometimes you had two weeks if it was an hour show, and it was very, as you can see in the list, he did an awful lot. There was a knock on the door. But the show failed to attract regular sponsorship and went off the air permanently on September 29, 1951. By 1955, Kanoi loved the lack of attention RCA executives gave NBC's remaining radio programs. Well, essentially, the decisions were made by the head of the department and his assistant. Now, at that time, the shows coming out of this department were very independent. They didn't go to a big mogul or mm -hmm. producer. Well, you just did it there in the shop. You, you satisfied your immediate supervisor, and that was it. This is Harry Junkin again. That spring, NBC decided to launch a new science fiction series from New York. It would be called X-1. That started as a staff show out of the NBC office, and basically it was mostly adaptations of science fiction stories, which had appeared in astounding science fiction, other magazines. Some were short novels, but they were mostly adaptations. We sneaked in a few originals along the way, but it was, you know, uh, Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov, on like that. Bob Hastings would often be featured. What's on NBC tonight? NBC later had a science fiction series called X-1. Ah, yes. Did a number of those. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I think the director, there was Harry Junkin, and then Danny Sutter, who I think was from Chicago originally, and had been a radio actor in Chicago. Directed many of them that I'll day. This is Fred Collins speaking. And now stay tuned for James Melton and Harvest of Stars on NBC. In the fall of 1955, X-1 would blow through NBC like a breath of fresh air, reaching a level of critical acclaim no science fiction show had done before, and laying the groundwork for many famous TV programs that would follow. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 117. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we blast off with NBC in the fall of 1955. We'll spotlight its premier science fiction series, X-1. We'll listen to episodes, hear interviews, and find out why this series continues to be a favorite among listeners today. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is the John Buzon Trio's Ill Wind. The band was noted for its space-age compositions using organ and saxophone. Perfect for tonight's episode.
Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash group slash The Wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. See, my root system goes back so deeply into radio. The, uh, I was two years old when radio came to birth in America. That's 1922, with the little crystal radios and sitting around my grandma's front room and listening to broadcasts. And I moved to Tucson, Arizona when I was 12, and Chandu the Magician came on. And God Almighty, I was just fantastically in love with Chandu the Magician. I have lived most of my life at the top of my voice. It's the only way to live. I can't imagine people not living at the top at a shout and a shriek all the time. And because of radio, it changed my life in many ways. Just listening to all the broadcasts, the early Sherlock Holmes shows, 1930-31, done by G. Washington's Coffee, Eno Crime Club, all those lovely things. The man you're listening to is writer Ray Bradbury. I got to Tucson, Arizona, was in the seventh grade, and I had begun to write short stories, and I was under the influence of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Tarzan, those wonderful Harold Foster drawings every Sunday in the newspaper, beautiful stuff, and it turns out I had fabulous taste because it's still around and it's admired by everyone in the world. The French and the Italians are reprinting all of Harold Foster's beautiful material, and I've been in touch with him the last 30 years, telling him that I love him, and he's a man in his 80s now, and still drawing on occasion. But anyway, got out to Tucson, listened to the radio, Chandu the Magician's on, said to all my friends, I'm gonna go down to the radio station and get a job. And I said, oh, come on now, you mean, you, you really think you, a 12-year-old boy, can go down and get a job? Have you ever acted on the radio? No. Does your father know anyone there? No. Mother? Any other relatives? No. You mean you're just gonna go down there and hang around? They're gonna hire you? I said, yeah, I'm gonna be irresistible. So I, I went down to the radio station and I emptied out ashtrays and I ran for newspapers and I just kept my nose pressed against the glass and watched. And by God, within two weeks I knew everyone at the station and I was reading the comic strips to the kiddies every Saturday night with a bunch of other kids and I got free passes to uh, all the local movies, King Kong, huh? The Mummy, Dracula, I mean, I was living high off the hog, huh? <laughs> God, isn't that something? It was a combination then of my three great loves, movies, reading comic strips, and being on the radio. By 
By the spring of 1955, he'd authored more than 100 short stories in one novel, Fahrenheit 451, born out of a collection of earlier works. These stories were published in magazines like Astounding Science Fiction, Street and Smith, Weird Tales, Thrilling Wonder Stories, and the Saturday Evening Post. Among sci-fi enthusiasts, Bradbury was regarded as one of America's preeminent writers. In April, Ernest Kenoy was tabbed to adapt one of the sections of Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, and The Moon Be Still is Bright, for X-Minus-1's audition. Countdown for blast-off. X-Minus-5, 4, 3, 2, X-Minus-1, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents... X minus one... Tonight, the Ray Bradbury story entitled, And the Moon Be Still as Bright. The first three expeditions for Mars left Earth in a mushroom of flame, arced through the atmosphere, and finally dwindled to tiny specks in the big eye of the Mount Palomar telescope, and then were lost to sight forever. The prearranged landing signals flashed back to Earth, and then the radios went dead. One after the other, ships had disappeared and were never heard from again. But still, the rockets came. The fourth expedition emerged from the silent gulfs of space, angled down toward the floating red disk of Mars, down into an orbit as the order came to land. The last blast of the bow jets broke red against the blue desert sands and the ship slid to a halt at the edge of a vast city that reflected the icy glare of the moonlight. For a while, all was still. All right, Park, you. Open the airlock. Hi, sir. Fresh air. Hey, it's cold out here. Who cares? We got here. I thought I'd never hit solid ground again. Hey, how about a fire, Captain Wildey? It's freezing. Later. We have work to do. Oh, smell that air. Why, you could get drunk on it. Say, there's an idea. Why don't we break out a bottle and celebrate? Biggs, there will be no drinking done till we're secured. But we're landed, Captain. Three other expeditions landed and disappeared within 24 hours. Now, we're not relaxing security till we find out what happened to them. What do you mean? Maybe Martians? Sender, you're an archaeologist. How old would you say they are? I can't tell till I study them more closely. It's a kind of engineering we couldn't duplicate on Earth. Well, I'm not interested in the architecture now. I want to make sure there's nothing there that might be dangerous. Mr. Hathaway. Yes, sir? I want you and Spender to take a reconnaissance party into the city and find out what's there. We'll set up camp here. No man is to go more than 50 feet from this rocket. 
then there'll be no celebration till Hathaway and his party report back. In the sea bottoms, the wind stirred along faint vapors, and from the mountains, great stone visages looked upon the silvery rocket and the small fire. The sky was black overhead as the two racing moons threw knife-edged double shadows on the desert. All right, come and get it. Ciao. Hey, what do you got there, Jackie? Sort of smothered in cold chicken fat. Good, I thought it was something I couldn't eat. <laughs> hey, Captain, Mr. Hathaway's back. Oh, Captain, Captain Wilder. Oh, yes, over here, Mr. Hathaway. Well, most of the city's dead. Spender says it's been dead a good many thousand years, but we found one part about a mile over toward the... What about it? People were living in it last week, sir. People? Martians. Where are they now? Dead. We found bodies, thousands of bodies. They hadn't been dead more than ten days. One of the died. You won't believe it. What killed them? Chicken pox. Chicken pox? Yes. Where could they get chicken pox? From Earth. Oh, then the other rockets did get through. Yes. I don't know what the Martians did to them, but I sure know what they did to the Martians. They gave them chicken pox and wiped them out. They just didn't have any resistance to an Earth disease. Now think of it, Captain. A race builds itself for a million years, refines itself, does everything it can to give itself respect and beauty, and then it dies. Of what? It's like saying the Greeks died of mumps or the proud Roman Empire collapsed because of athlete's foot. We didn't even give them a decent excuse for dying. We just gave them chicken pox. Spender, get hold of yourself. You didn't see those bodies, Captain. Yes, I know. It must have been a shock. You need a rest, a little relaxation. The Martians are dead. There's nothing you can do about that now. Hey, you hear that? The Martians are all dead. Come on, let's break out a bottle and hoop it up. How about a case, eh? Good Lord. They have to do that now. Isn't there time later to throw old beer cans into the canals? Bender, you're an idealist. They're not. All they know now is that they're safe. Little shouting won't hurt. You think too much. I was safe on Mars. The first Earthmen on Mars. We're going to celebrate. <laughs> Yahoo! I think radio is great fun, and you could do very fascinating things dramatically in radio because you could be here and there and very quickly in the story. X-1 was picked up. The network formed a partnership with the aforementioned sci-fi magazines to choose stories for adaptation. The magazines would plug the show, and the show would mention the magazine during the introduction. X-1 debuted on Sunday, April 24, 1955. It ran for seven episodes, until NBC bumped it from its weekend schedule. You see, uh, there was something big going on in NBC. This is Monitor. And now the American Forum of the Air, one of television's most interesting and influential programs, in accord with our policy of bringing you the best of the weekend programming, whatever the medium, Monitor now invites you to listen to a playback of this week's discussion on the American Forum. Question to be resolved, is American freedom in danger? After Monitor debuted on June 18, 1955, taking over NBC's entire weekend format, the only two Sunday dramatic shows remaining were Fibber McGee and Molly and The Great Gildersleeve. There was suddenly no place for science fiction. The future was already here. 
X-1 wrapped up its initial run on June 5th. Here's the latest news. The cable snapped on a footbridge at the Cherokee Indian Reservation in western North Carolina today. About 60 people on the bridge plunged into the waters of a rocky and shallow river. Incidentally, to find out more about the launch of Monitor, give a listen to Breaking Walls episode 116. When the series was pulled, NBC asked listeners to send postcards and letters if they had any interest in hearing more. The network had long been known for its impatience with new programs. If the series wasn't generating sponsorship and large listenership straight away, NBC often dropped or moved the show. Unfairly, the onus was on Street and Smith and their magazine to make X-1 profitable. Three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. You were mostly based out of New York, though. You oh, yes. home and you stayed there most of the time. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, near Ebbetsfield. My wife says I moved out here when the Dodgers came, but that's not true. <laughs> I came out here to do a pilot for a series. But almost all my radio, except for singing on the bond mm-hmm. dance, was all in New York. I'd still love to go back to radio, Chuck. It was, well, the I hope best, so. it was the best medium that I have ever been in, and I worked with the best actors in those days. Thanks a lot. Thank you. One of New York's veteran directors was Hyman Brown. By using a group that was familiar one with the other, also you had a kind of group ensemble playing. The sure. actors related to each other magnificently. There was a warmth and a camaraderie and a respect in the studio that I don't think you'll find on any set or any stage anywhere else. I'm very proud of that. All of the people that I have ever worked with, going back to the 30s, are still with me. We spent a good deal of time in past Breaking Walls episodes discussing Hollywood Radio's famed actors. There was a concurrent group of New York actors who were just as talented, like Bob Hastings. Those were great days. Radio actors were awfully good, very good, and a lot of them came out here and did well. Frank Lovejoy, Mason Adams now, did Lou Grant. Of course, I go back to Arnold Moss, Everett Sloan, all oh, the people I've, Bill Quinn, the people actors. I worked with in radio, Lucille Wall. Big New York contingent. Oh, yes, a lot of those, uh, yes. I, a lot of them in New York. I knew some of the Chicago people. Fran Carlin, I mm-hmm. think, was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Casey Adams, do those names mean anything Yes, to you? Vivian Smolin. Vi- oh, well, Vivian, I knew very, very yes. well. Vivian was on Arbonne, the thing with Madge Tucker. Sharita Bauer, who had, yes. uh, oh, I, we grew up together. Legendary lady oh, yes, yes. soap operas. Yes, because I think Guiding Light probably was one of the longest. But she was in radio and then moved she into went TV. From the radio to the TV and passed away a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Very dear friend. As a matter of fact, I spoke to her. I used to call her when she was ill. Bob Hastings mentioned Arnold Moss. I played a great many of the heavies in radio. I got killed regularly four or five times a week. And uh, when these things were happening, my son was then about two, two and a half years old, and he would listen. 
we had a nurse at the time taking care of Jeff, and she would tell my wife to get me immediately before I left the station to call home to assure Jeff that I was all right, that I really hadn't been killed. There was Jan Miner. Whoever was out of his way when it's time for him to speak, he'd get to that side of the mic because mm -hmm. they were directional mics, I guess you call them. Well, both sides worked. But he'd have to move over because we, well, we worked in front of that microphone with arms flinging. And yeah. many times your arm would fling and the script would go flying <laughs> all over the studio and you'd have to run to the other side to read off the, the other person's script. John Gibson. People assume that radio was comparatively easy, as I do, standing in a well-lighted studio with a nice script in front of you and all you have to do is read the lines. But you can say some awfully strange things by mistake. <laughs> Your tongue can get twisted, as you know. There have been some classic. <laughs> I is begin it? to get the picture. I don't think I'm second to anybody in volume of shows as an actor. I do believe that I have done somewhere over 10,000 radio shows, or appearances if you want to call them, or whatever, and I am still very nervous. Joe Julian. One of the shows that you were on for a long period of time was Lorenzo Jones. What part did you play? Well, I played part of Sandy. He was a young kid who lived next door to Lorenzo and worshipped Lorenzo. Well, I think the best soap opera on the air. It certainly was the funniest. I think you'll have to agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> it had genuine humor and wit and charm. The character of Lorenzo was a would-be inventor. He was always inventing things that were almost practical, but not quite. Yeah. Like yeah. the three-spout teapot for strong, weak, and medium tea. <laughs> <laughs> Once he invented a gadget for his automobile, he had a recording thing in it, so that if you went over a certain speed limit, a voice would come snarling out of the loudspeaker saying, Take it easy, bud! <laughs> Jackson Beck. You're one of that breed that doubled as uh, actor and radio announcer. Which were you applying for when you were making those rounds? I applied. Originally, I started out as an actor. Some impersonations, which I no longer do, of people you never heard of anyway because they're all dead <laughs> and gone 30 years. But I've always figured out announcing was just another facet of acting anyway. You act the part of a salesman, and that's what announcing really is. Mandel Kramer. Nothing like that exists anymore. In the old days, the third floor in NBC was where everybody congregated. There were Colby's, which is non-existent now. Colby's was the restaurant at CBS, 485 Madison Avenue. So if you wanted to meet any of your friends or just find out what was going on, you just ended up on the third floor of NBC over at Colby's, and you kind of got the word there. It was all passed on. Everybody congregated there, and it was social. And also, there was a good chance to nab a director as he walked through the, you know, from sure. one studio to another, because the third floor was where a great many of the dramatic shows came from, from the studios on the third floor. But radio was really the, my first love, you know. The great camaraderie that existed in radio in the early days, before your time, Dick, when there was a, a relatively small number of us, I don't know how many exactly, but a fairly small group of actors who were fortunate enough to be in demand most of the time. You could work and did work seven days a week. Another oft-heavy was Larry Haynes. Sure. The one thing about radio which is different than television was that you had a certain anonymity, I believe is the word, where you could be on ten shows a day and walk down Broadway in 42nd and nobody would recognize you. Did anybody ever recognize you because of your voice, yes. you know, in social? Uh, any, any? As a matter of fact, quite recently I, I was amazed, I shocked, I almost forgot what I was doing. I was placing a call and at a booth. I dialed the operator and asked for a number and she said, yes, just one moment, Mr. Haynes. <laughs> no fool. I almost fell to the floor. 
I would have been less surprised if she had said Mr. Bergman. <laughs> Apparently she was an old radio fan. Yeah, I guess so. But that amazed me. That really amazed me. And of course, the husband-wife team of Mary Jane Higby and Guy Sorrell. Mary Jane, was there any feeling, any difference in feeling on the part of the actor or actress in doing a nighttime show such as Lux or Perry Mason from a daytime show, did it seem more important to you in oh, any way? Yes, I don't think anyone took the daytime serials, or very few people took them seriously. The first serious moment might be when you counted the pages of your script to be sure they were in the right order just before you went on the air. There was a marked difference between a beginner in radio and one who'd been at it a long time. The beginner would look through his pages to see if he was in a lot of the script, and he was in a lot of the script, he was delighted. Whereas the old-timer would look through and said, oh, I'm through on page one, isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> because he was getting paid just as much. <laughs> These are just some of the people who appeared on countless shows originating from New York during radio's golden age. Many were able to make the transition to TV. Many others weren't. It was further proof that X-1 needed to be successful. Thanks to listener appeals, the show was brought back on Thursdays in July. In September, X-1 broadcast Bradbury's and the Moon Be Still as Bright for national audiences. Twenty bottles were opened and drunk. The voices got louder. The earth laughs and shouts echoing across the empty Martian sands. Spender listened to the wind over his ears, cool and whispering. He felt the land getting cooler. The stars drew closer, very near. The air smelled clean and new. He looked at the cool ice of the white Martian buildings over there on the empty sea lands. <laughs> Hey, what do we do with these empty bottles? Save them, stupid. There's a two cents deposit. Ah! <laughs> Throw them away. Hey, wait, wait. How about that building? Two to one on a buck, I can heave one right through that window. You're up. All right, here goes. Hey! Oh, hey! Double or nothing on the next shot. Put that bottle down, Biggs. Who's there, Mr. Spender? Stop smashing those windows. What's the difference? The planet's ours now. I guess I can do anything with it I want. Drop that bottle or I'll knock your teeth out. Yeah? Hey, just watch me. I warned you, big... Hey, 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 come on, come on. What's going on here? Spender! Spender! I hit him. He's crazy, Captain. He just walked up and slugged me. All right, thanks. Spender, you come with me. Now, suppose you explain. What was the idea of... The noise, the drunken brawl. Friend, the men are tired. This has been a long trip. And you have a different way of seeing things. No, I'm seeing things, all right. I'm seeing how we'll ruin Mars. We'll rip it up and rip the skin off the way we've already ruined Earth. Is that why you hit Biggs? Yes. I couldn't stand the idea of them watching us make fools of ourselves. Them? The Martians. They're dead. They're all dead. But they know we're here. Doesn't an old thing always know when a new thing comes? We've come a long way to smash their windows and spit in their wine. Well, maybe you're right. But I'm still going to fine you $50 for that fight. Now, come on, Spender. 
sucking your chin. We'll go back there and play happy. Now they moved out into the moonlight across the desert. They made their way into the dreaming, dead city. The light of the racing twin moons glinted on the barrel of a pistol, the long blade of a machete, the round, gurgling shape of a raised bottle. The wind blew in from the dead sea bottom and brushed through the silvery wire filigree of the towers. Strange music drifted down to the double shadowed streets, a thin, haunted music that played as it had played through the uncounted years of time. Nobody moved. The moons held and froze them. The wind beat slowly around them. Hey! Hey, you people in the city! Pigs, I just want to make a little noise. What kind of a celebration is this, anyway? Come on. They built this city thousands of years ago. And now where are they? How do they die? Who cares? They're dead. That's good enough for me. Lord Byron. What? Lord Byron, a 19th century poet. He wrote a poem that fits this city. Might have been written by the last Martian poet. So we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night. Though the heart be still as loving, though the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears its sheath and the soul outwears its breast. And the heart must pause to breathe, and love itself must rest. Though the night was made for loving, and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon. Without a word, the earthmen stood in the center of the city. It was a clear night. There was not a sound except the music of the wind. At their feet lay a tile court worked into the shapes of ancient animals and images. They stood there, silvered by the double moons beneath the crystal towers of Mars. And then Biggs was sick, and the sour stench of liquor filled the cool air. The men of Earth had come to Mars. And Spender turned and walked away into the city, alone in the moonlight, never once stopping to look back. It was a morning that might have been a Monday, or a Tuesday, or any day on Mars. Biggs was on the canal rim, his feet hung down in the cool water, soaking, while he took the sun in his face. Hey, what are you doing back here, Biggs? Didn't you go out with the search party? Yeah. I come back. I got a blister. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? Look. Look, Cherokee. See that? Anyway, I had enough searching. Four days hunting for that screwball spender. Didn't find him yet, huh? Oh, good riddance. Oh, my feet. I'm going to soak them in the canal. Uh, if I was wilder, I wouldn't worry about that nut spender. Let him go. He's a cracked pot anyway. Well, he's a little foggy upstairs, I guess. Hey, why don't you take your feet out of that canal, Biggs? I got to make coffee out of that water. Coffee? You call that stuff coffee? I had a motorcycle once that dripped grease that tasted better hey, than that. Hey, wait a minute, Biggs. Hey, look over there. Where? By that bush. There's someone there. Hey. It's him. Hey. Hey, Spender. Spender. He's coming over. Why don't he stay lost, that crazy jerk? Hi, Spender. Long time no see. Hello, Cherokee. 
I've been exploring some ruins. Oh, you and them ruins. You're like a dog in a boneyard. What's the matter? Why don't you say something? Where you been? Up in the hills. What would you say if I told you I found a Martian? Oh, yeah? Where? Never mind. Let me ask you a question. How would you feel if you were a Martian and people came to your land and started to tear it up? I know how I'd feel. I've, I've got Cherokee blood in me. My grandfather told me a lot of things about the way they kicked the Indians around in the Oklahoma Territory. If there's any Martian around, I'm all for him. How about you, Biggs? They're dead. They're all dead. It's a good thing, too. Well, I found a Martian. Up in a dead town in the hills. I've been reading their books, and they're easy to understand. And I've learned their language. And then I found this Martian. And I brought him here, now. I don't see no Martian. I'm the last Martian. What did you say? Biggs, I'm going to kill you. Oh, cut it out. What kind of a lousy joke is that? And I don't... Now, don't put that gun away. <laughs> You're kidding, huh? All right, Spender, you... He's dead. You killed him. You can come with me, Cherokee. You're an Indian. You know how the Martians would feel. You can be with me in this. You killed him. You just... You just killed him. He deserved it. You're crazy. Maybe I am. But you can come with me. Come with you? For what? Go on and get out of here, you crazy murderer. Of all of them, I thought you'd understand. I thought you'd remember what happened to your own people. You get out of here, you crazy murderings! Don't reach for that gun! Spender. Spender! One of the men featured in this cast was Nelson Olmsted. And we began to build our little crystal sets and listen to them. It took something like a Quaker Oats box because it was round. That was important. It had weird Quaker Oats. You wrapped it with copper wire. And I don't know nothing about the engineering qualities of it beyond that. But by pushing the little cat's whisker around on the crystal, you all of a sudden heard something coming out of the air with no wire connecting you to any telephone or anything. And to the kids of my age at that time, it was a miracle. A miracle. You know, today our kids will watch television and see a broadcast in color that comes from Europe via satellite, and they'll say, so what else is new? But we thought radio was the greatest miracle of all time, and I don't think that awe of the industry ever quite left me. Hathaway, break out the arms locker, issue pistols, rifles, and grenades. Yes, sir. And you'd better get the Bible out of the navigation chest. We have to bury these two. Now, Proctor, you start digging a grave, hmm? How about Spender? We'll have to go up in the hills and find him. Just let me at him with my bare hands, a crazy murdering louse. That's enough, Proctor. The man is sick. He must be... Sick, my eye! He's That's a... enough! Now grab a shovel and start digging. Spender saw the thin dust rising in the valley, and he knew the pursuit was beginning. The sun burned farther up the sky and the blue sand drifted lazily across the sea bottom below. He sat beside a quiet pool 10,000 years old and held a silver book. Through the house played the strange wind music of ancient Mars. And he heard voices whisper in his mind. I hear you. I've always heard you. Even down there on Earth. 
No, I won't run. What's the use? Live, Earthman. Live, live, what for? To see them tear down your temples and put up hot dog stands? Run, 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 run. They see me now. They know I'm up here. There's Wilder now. I've got him right in my sights. Kill, 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 kill. Funny, he hasn't ordered them to use grenades. They could lob one right up here and blow me to bits. Yeah, maybe the captain thinks I'm too nice to be blown to bits. He wants my death to be clean. Just one bullet hole in me, nothing messy. And why? Because he understands me. The only one in the crew who ever did. Well, at least I can do the same for him. Just one bullet in his head, a nice clean death. All I have to do is pull the trigger and then... It's no use. I can't do it to him. Spender! Spender! Can you hear me, Spender? I hear you, Captain. What do you want? Talk! Truth! All right. Come on up. Leave your gun down there and keep your hands up. Oh, that's quite a climb. You would mind if I sit down? Hmm. How long do you think you can hold out? Until you're all dead. Now, why didn't you kill all of us this morning when you had the chance? You could have. I know. I got sick. After I started killing people, I realized they were just fools and I shouldn't be killing them, but it was too late. So I came up here where I could get angry again. Why did you do it? When I was a kid, my folks took me to visit Mexico City. I'll always remember the way my father acted loud and big. And my mother didn't like the people because she thought they didn't wash enough. I can, I can see my mother and my father coming to Mars and acting the same way. Anything that's strange is no good to us. We aren't fit to take over this planet. But to kill two men. How would you feel if a Martian spit on the White House floor? You know, you haven't acted very civilized yourself. Today. I'll kill you all off, Wilder. That'll delay the next rocket five years, and then I'll kill them too. And if I'm lucky, I'll live to be 60. And I'll meet every expedition that lands on Mars. Oh, I'll be very friendly. I'll explain our rocket blew up one day. And then I'll kill them off. And I'll save Mars for half a century. And by then, maybe the Earth people will give up. And yet you're outnumbered. We already have you surrounded. In an hour, you will be dead. I found an underground passage that'll take me back in the hills, Wilder. I'll go back there. And then I'll pick you off one by one. We'll see. Well, it's a nice town you've got here, Spender. It's beautiful. I'd like to live here. You can. Join me. You're not like them. Why go back to them, Captain? I'll, I'll show you what a good life these people had. I'll be... Oh. No, there's too much earth blood in me. I may even agree with you about all this, but that does not change what I must do. You won't stay? No. This is your last chance, Bender. Look, you're sick. Now come along with me quietly. No. no. One, one last thing. If you win, do me a favor. Try to see that they don't tear this planet apart. Right. And if it helps, just 
think of me as a very crazy fellow who went berserk one summer day. Be easier on you that way. I'll think that over. So long, Spender. Bye, Captain. Good luck. The men spread out again, walking and then running on the hot hillside places where there would be sudden cool grottos that smelled of moss and sudden open blasting places that smelled of sun or stone. The men ran and ducked and ran and squatted in the shadows. I'll blow his brain! Captain Wilder hugged the rock warmed by the sun. He gasped, for the air was thin and not meant for running. Spender lay at the top of the hill, and a gap in the rocks showed the white of his shirt against the shadows. Wilder looked at the towers of the little clean Martian village, like sharply carved chess pieces lying in the afternoon. He saw the rocks and the interval between where Spender's chest was revealed. Go on, Spender, get out. You've only got a few seconds to escape. Go on, get out of the caves. Come back later. You go now. I've got to win this. I've got to think that I'm right. Pull this trigger. Go now. Get out. I'll get him. A slug in the head. I'll blow his bloody brain. No, Park Hill. Put down that gun. I'll do this myself. Oh, Spender. Why didn't you get out? Why? 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 They buried him in that ancient valley town where the music of the wind played on through the days and the nights. They laid him in an ancient silver sarcophagus with waxes and wines which were 10,000 years old, his hands folded on his chest. The last they saw of him was his peaceful face in the cold silver light of the racing twin moons. The captain found the poem in Spender's pocket, and he read it before he shut the marble door. So we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night. Though the heart be still as loving, and the moon be still as bright. Though the night was made for loving, and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon. The next afternoon, Parkhill did some target practice in one of the dead cities, shooting out the crystal windows and blowing the tops off the fragile towers. Captain Wilder caught Parkhill and nearly knocked his teeth out. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you the Ray Bradbury story and The Moon Be Still as Bright, adapted for radio by Ernest Canoy. Featured in the cast were John Larkin, Clark Gordon, Dick Hamilton, Nelson Olmstead, Lawrence Kerr, and Stan Early. 
Your narrator was Norman Rose. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. I would like to come back 10 times or 12 times because there are a lot of careers. Uh, my son-in-law, one of my son-in-laws, is a young architect studying at UCLA, and I've loved architecture. I'd like to come back as an architect. I'd like to come back as a priest or a rabbi or a minister because I care about those problems. I care about the universe and the mystery of us in it, which is inexplicable and beautiful and terrifying. And I'd like to come back as a painter, a full-time actor, full-time poet. There's more than enough to be done, and I don't understand people who haven't found careers for themselves <laughs> because I'm going wild wanting to be all these things and not having enough lifetime to do it in. I'd like to run for Pope next year. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all vote for you. Oh, boy. <laughs> Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Look out! Once the door had been opened for you, once Larry Haynes was known by the producers of radio shows, did they call you or did you call them? In oh, other no. words, did you have to do a lot of auditioning no. for work? No, no. Once, uh, once you were established, as most of the names who are familiar to you, you were called. The producer or director would read a script and say, vocally, Larry Haynes is right or Dick is right or so-and-so is right, and that's the way they would cast it. Once in a while, they would hold auditions, but very rarely would a show like Gangbusters or Inner Sanctum or, or any of those audition people for parts. No, it was very tough, unfortunately, for people to break into radio who were not known. And their entree pretty much were the sustaining shows, which are the shows that the networks produced that were non-commercial. And that was their entree to radio. The National Broadcasting Company brings you now an address by Adlai Stevenson from the International Amphitheater in Chicago. Direct from the International Amphitheater in Chicago, 
We are brought to bring you an address by former Governor Adlai E. Stevenson, 1952 candidate for president on the Democratic ticket. Mr. Stevenson is speaking before a dinner of the Democratic National Committee. Now to introduce Mr. Stevenson, here is Mayor Richard Daly of Chicago. Fellow Democrats, welcome to Chicago. In every critical period of American history, there has appeared a man whose words carried the full meaning of American democracy. After September 22, 1955, X minus one was once again pulled from the air. He returned two weeks later on October 6th. The show moved to Wednesdays on November 16th. It would remain there for the next 20 episodes, finally establishing some continuity. He was appointed chief of the United States delegation to the preparatory commission. 1956 would be a presidential election year in the United States. On November 19th, Democratic hopeful Adlai Stevenson was on the campaign trail in Chicago. The atomic age was fully underway. Three days later, a Soviet jet dropped the first Soviet thermonuclear bomb in Siberia. That same day, Colonel Tom Parker signed Elvis Presley to RCA Records. America celebrated Thanksgiving on November 24th at the height of Cold War fear. The following week, on November 30th, the first Soviet Antarctic expedition, led by Mikhail Somov, would begin. The times were definitely changing. Daly, Mr. President Truman, my fellow Democrats who I am honored to welcome to Illinois, to Chicago, and to the International Amphitheater once again. I thought I had a good speech for you here tonight, but I've discovered that it has a serious defect. Among the nine preceding speakers, you have already heard it. That week at 8 p.m. from Hollywood, CBS broadcast two 15-minute serials. The first was My Son Jeep, and the second was yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Tim Connors, John Boy. Congratulate me. Congratulations, Tim. What for? I just had another boy. Seven pounds, 12 ounces. Hey, you like cigars? Sure. Well, come on down and pick one up. Oh, maybe you better pack a suitcase, too. I got one for you out in Culver, Montana. Where is that? I just told you. Out in Montana somewhere. We have a dead policyholder there named Henderson. Henderson, huh? Yeah. Now, we don't know if he was murdered, committed suicide, or had an accident. Well, what does it look like? All three. Okay, Tim. Be there in an hour. <laughs> Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. The 
following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Henderson matter, whatever it's going to be. Expense account item one, dollar and a quarter for a detailed map. I had an idea that Culver, Montana was a place that only Rand McDally might know about. They did. I found it tucked up in the high northern corner of the state near Great Falls. Hey, where's your bag? Home. I told you to pack it. Now look, Give me a cigar, Tim. Tell me about the new boy in the new case. Okay, have a chair. There you are. I wouldn't smoke it if I were you. Terrible. Cost me two bucks a box. Hey, you know something? I'm thinking of naming the new boy Johnny. Oh, tough case, huh? Yeah. Hmm? Look, look, we're in the same sweet old spot, Johnny. Same old problem. One of our policyholders is dead, and for looking into the circumstances of his death, the insurance company is no longer a friend of the widow and orphan, but a big bad monster trying to weasel out of a just claim. All claims are just claims, or are they? Well, of course they are. No one ever tried to pull a fast one on an insurance company. Well, the world's full of nice, honest, straight-playing people. Uh-huh. Now tell me about getting sandbagged in a poker game. Look, I want to get this out of the way and get back over to the hospital and see my wife. Now, John, this claim came into the insurance office yesterday afternoon, airmail special. The insurance company turned it over to me today. What company? Western. The policy's worth $25,000 face value, double indemnity if death was by accident. No payment for suicide. Uh-huh. You say the man's name was Henderson? Yeah, it says here, George Walter Henderson, Montana rancher. Last Thursday, he fell four stories out of a hotel window in Culver and died instantly. At least that's what we have in this report here. Somebody could have shoved him, or he could have taken the leap. Now, we have to know for certain. Well, what's on the claim report? Accidental. There was no inquest, no police investigation, and that's not good enough for us. Uh-huh. This Henderson prominent? Well, he was big enough, Johnny. Cattleman, rancher. He was also a major stockholder and the only newspaper in Culver, so I doubt if his paper suggests suicide or anything else. Do you? I don't know, Tim. I never met the editor. Well, meet him if you like. Talk to him. Talk to anybody in Culver. Find out what was what. <laughs> this is a lousy cigar. Johnny, you know how to handle these things. We have to have more information than this. Have you tried to do anything on it at all? Yeah, I phoned the sheriff's office long distance and talked to a man named Holton, Eve Holton. He said he'd be happy to cooperate. Well, what else? I phoned the beneficiary to get some information. Name's Pauline Henderson, his widow. Is she going to cooperate, too? I don't think so, pal. Huh? She hung up on me. We will continue with the Henderson matter in a moment. By Wednesday the 30th, it was known that George Henderson's death was no accident. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Eve Holton, son. Hi, Sheriff. You put in a call for me, did you? Yes, I'm ready to go to work. Now that the inquest's been held and George Henderson's death is officially an accident, I might be able to move around your little town a little easier. What can I do for you? Help me to move around. Uh, case is closed, as far as I'm concerned. Eve, what's the matter with you? That inquest was a farce. For all I know, Henderson could have been pushed out of that hotel window. The attitude of different people in this town makes that whole oh, thing... Hold on now, son. Hold on. I meant to say it's closed as far as my office is concerned. Personally, I think it needs investigating. We can help each other, maybe, you and me. Can I come over? Oh, I better come there. You know how folks are around here. <laughs> Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) 
expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. Location, Culver, Montana. To Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Henderson matter. The question, accident, suicide, or murder? Expense account item four, $3.48. One day later to Tim Connors' office in Hartford explaining the situation in Culver. I'll, uh, I'll read it back to you, Mr. Dollar. Mr. Tim Connors, Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. Coroner's inquest into death of George Henderson, policy number EMP-196667, found death to be accidental. In my opinion, the inquest was not thorough. Have decided to stay on in Culver and conduct my own investigation. If any change, please advise via Western Union, Butte Hotel, Culver. Am forwarding copy of coroner's verdict this date. Best regards, Dollar. Correct? Okay. Oh, uh, Mr. Dollar. Hmm? Good luck. <laughs> yeah, sure. Expense account item 5, 68 cents, postage. I mailed a copy of the coroner's verdict to Hartford Airmail Special. After that, I went back to my hotel to wait for the sheriff, Eve Holton. Come on in, Eve. I... Oh. Hello. Hello. Uh, Mr. Dollar, my name's Porter. I'm the manager of this hotel. Oh, well, come in, Mr. Porter. I, I can't right now. I've got some other things to attend to. Well... Anything I can do for you, Mr. Porter? I, I'm going to have to ask you for your room, Mr. Dollar. Oh, when? Uh, t today. Any particular reason? We're all filled up. Uh, the, the room's been reserved for six weeks. By whom? What? Who reserved it? Why, uh, a man from Bozeman. It's a sort of convention. Sort of convention. What kind of convention is that, Mr. Porter? Look, Mr. Dollar, you'll have to leave this room today. The man's coming in tonight. Aha. Uh -huh. And there's no other hotel in town. That's the way it is, Mr. Dollar. No other place to stay? No. So I have to pack my bags and get out of town, is that it? I must have the room, Mr. Dollar. Who asked you to say you wanted the room, Mr. Porter? Who asked you to come here and kick me out? Why, no one, I... Well, I, you I... go back to no one, Mr. Porter, and you tell no one that I'm staying right here in this room here in Culver until I finish what I have to do here. You tell that to no one, will you? Mr. Dollar, I'd, I'd hate to call the police. Go ahead, Mr. Porter. Be sure and tell them about the sort of convention you're having and how all the rooms are sold out. Tell them about Mr. No One and tell them I called your bluff. Anything else, Mr. Porter? I was at the stage where I was beginning to take notes for myself. Note one. The mayor didn't want to have an inquest into the death of George Henderson. Note two. When they did have an inquest, they didn't want to really find out anything. Note three. Mr. Hotel Manager wanted me to keep on not finding out anything by getting me out of town. I explained all of this to Eve Holton when he showed up a half an hour later. Well, kind of tight, isn't it? I don't know what that means, Sheriff, but it's pretty stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's stupid, son, but it could be effective. Now, I'll tell you what. If Porter calls the police, I'm the police, so don't worry about that. I'll hem him and haw him. All right, thanks. Now then, uh, tell me how much your insurance company stuck for. $50,000 if Henderson's death goes by as an accident. The good book says that's what it was. I know, I know. There's a chance, too, he had a heart failure and fell out of that window. Oh, sure. 
Always a chance. We might have to dig him up and find out, Sheriff. Oop, now, hold on. Autopsies and digging people up is one thing you'd have a hard time doing around here. I might insist on it. I don't know. Well, let that go for now. Say, tell me about Mrs. Henderson. Where's she from? Here. Right here in Culver. Now, she didn't get that mink coat and those diamonds she was wearing at the inquest in Culver. More important, she didn't get that continental look here either. So what's the story? Well, her name was Pauline Underwood before she married George. Born and raised right here in Culver. Of course, she went to school in the East, and she's been in Europe a couple of times, but most of her life's been right here. She is a mighty pretty widow. And a mighty rich one, too. Henderson had it. I know. This divorce she talked about at the inquest yesterday. Well, everybody in town knew they weren't getting along, never did get along. How could they? Pauline's 26 and George is 59. He could have been her father. As a matter of fact, he almost was. Tell me about that. You got a drink? Hmm? Oh, yeah. Well, George raised Pauline from the time she was 14. He paid for all her schooling and growing up. She didn't have any folks after her old man died. George was pretty good to her. He sure was. (laughs) Was he a friend of her parents? Well, Tom Underwood worked out at the ranch for George. When he died, there was Pauline standing there. Oh, yeah. Hmm, thanks. And she eventually married him and his money, huh? Well, I I wouldn't put it that way exactly. I think she liked him. Now, I've gone over what you're thinking, son. Those two were talking about divorce for some time. The papers had been drawn up for a settlement. She'd have got a lot of alimony and so on. Oh, Pauline had no call to push him out that window or have him pushed out. At least not for money. All right. Suppose he didn't want a divorce. Suppose he loved her and she came to the hotel room that morning and he pleaded with her to try all over again. Suppose she said no. Suppose she said no in a great big cold way. And George Henderson sat there and thought about it after she left. And he got sick all over and he walked over to that window and... Suicide? What do you think? You know him. Uh, He wasn't a suicide type. Oh, nobody's the suicide type until they come to the end of the line, Eve. Then it's too late to interview them and ask them how they got there. Everybody seems to think it was an accident, so I'm just throwing words around. You have a right to do that if you aren't satisfied, son. Hey, getting back to this hotel again. Who might want me to get out of town and not ask any questions? Anybody. Well, who? No idea. But it's somebody who has some feelings in this. Hey, who owns this hotel, Eve? Noah Baxter. Who's Noah Baxter? Rancher. Got a place about 15 miles from here. Pretty big man. Uh Uh-huh. Friend of Henderson's? Yeah. Hmm. And let me put that question a little different... Baxter, a friend of Mrs. Henderson's. I don't know. Can you find out? I can try. Well, find out about him and any other friends, Eve. Friends that might be younger, that might have gone to Europe or school in the East. Yeah, sure. What are you thinking now, son? Well, now, if I were Mrs. Henderson and my husband fell out of a window in this hotel and killed himself, I'd hire a lawyer and I'd sue the hotel for damages. If the insurance company didn't pay off my claim, I'd hire a lawyer and insist that they pay that claim. I'd do those things right away, Sheriff, especially if I thought it was all legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Two hours later, I received a wire from Tim Connors. He requested me to look up a man named Thurber, an insurance broker living in Great Falls. For more information on yours truly, Johnny Dollar, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 102. You were talking about things that went wrong on shows, and this was a show that uh, he was writing called Now It Can Be Told. 
started just after the war. I was on that one day, and usually, you know, when the actors came in, they sort of turned, where's my part? I'm on page 16. They made a mental note of it and kept the script open to that page. But that day, for some strange reason, I followed the script. I don't know what led me to do that. And there was an elderly actor on that show, Martin Gable, who was the narrator, who suddenly got to a word, a name, he fluffed. And he tried it again and couldn't get it. He tried it a third time and then said, oh, the hell with it. <laughs> and walked away from the mic. <laughs> well, Martin's narration is coming in. And Martin took a deep breath, and I was looking at the script, and he said, the freighter Marianne was on a northwest... <laughs> and I came in, I said, heading, and continued on her course. <laughs> oh, really? Did Martin regain By that time, Martin, Martin came back in again after he'd done. I think that would tend to sober you up, too, if uh, the actor playing opposite you managed to retain his composure. I, I've had that experience where uh, mm -hmm. you suddenly become embarrassed within yourself because you realize what you have done or almost caused to occur, and the other actor has been perhaps at that moment a little yeah. more professional than you. And, well, uh, you, I don't think it was being more professional. I think you caught a look of the director. Oh. His name was Tony Leader, sure. and he was right. dead white. <laughs> yeah, Tony, <laughs> and Tony Leader was a very dark-skinned chap. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen him feel that pale in my life. Opposite on NBC, X-1 took to the air with Vital Factor. It's the story of a ruthless tycoon who desires space travel at all costs. X-1, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents X minus one. Tonight's story, The Vital Factor by Nelson Bond. I doubt that anywhere on earth there's a man or woman or a child who doesn't know the name Wayne Crowder. I doubt whether there's a human being who hasn't at one time or another used one of the Crowder products. The can opener or the razor blade or the patented tooth powder dispenser or the Crowder improved slideless fastener. In the magazines which write about men of business, Crowder was described as a man of ice and stone and ink and steel. No warmth to his blood. And a heart to pump, not feel human emotion. And he built a battery of buttons into his desk so that when he wanted something, all he ever had to do was press a button. And like genies springing out of the bottle, the proper personnel would come running. Yes, Mr. Carter? Get me my engineers. Yes, sir, right away, Mr. Carter. Here are your engineers, sir. All right, close the door and get out. Now, gentlemen, sit down. 
Gentlemen, I want you to build me a spaceship. A spaceship, sir? That's right. I've decided that I'm going to be the man who gives space flight to mankind. Any questions? Sir, we can design such a ship. That part isn't too hard. Yes? But, but we've no way of providing the motor to power such a ship. When the ship's ready to fly, there'll be a motor. Sir, I... I don't like to contradict you, but you can't go ahead of the total technology of a historical period. It's like asking somebody in 1600 to build the internal combustion engine. You see, scientists have been searching for a motive power for spaceships for decades now without success. You'll have a ship, but we can't lift that ship from the Earth's surface. That is, not to the point of free flight at any rate. Mr. Crowder... <clears throat> Uh, you see, you'll be spending millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, perhaps, for nothing. What's your name? Phillips, sir. You're fired. Go down to the cashier and draw your pay and get out. What, sir? Get out. Nobody who works for me thinks of how much something costs. What? We use money. We don't let expense provide a rationalization for not beginning a project. All right, Phillips. I give you permission to leave. Right now. Any other comments? The ship will be built, of course, Mr. Crowder. The fact still remains, we can't power it. You design the ship, I'll find the motor for you. Where, sir? I don't know. But somewhere in the world, there's a man who does know the secret. I want that motor, and I'll root out the man who has the theory which will let us build it. How quickly do you want this done, sir? Yesterday. Yes, sir. Is there anything you need? We'll need a construction yard, sir, and certain machinery, and a great many materials, of course. Uh, labor force. Get them. Send me the bills. I don't want to be bothered with minor details. Yes, sir. And uh, one more thing, sir. Phillips. Yes? We need him, sir. He's a top man on electronics. He's a vital cog in our team. I don't want Phillips working for me. That's clear, I hope. Who else in the country knows what he does? No one in this country, sir. There's a man in India, though. Get him. We've tried before, Mr. Crowder. He's working on an important project in his country. I'm not he... concerned with details. Get that man, pay him what he wants, but get him. Sir, you don't understand. If this man quits his job, that whole project will collapse. It means the welfare of many people, millions of people in his country. He has a high sense of patriotism. Buy that sense of patriotism. That's all. I don't want to see any of you again until you have a report of work in progress. Yes, sir. Miss Holmes, there's a man named Phillips going to draw his pay. I want two company policemen to meet him at the cashier's office and escort him from there directly off the premises, and I want them to be emphatic about it. Yes, Mr. Crowder. And notify the newspapers, the television, and the radio networks, the periodicals, and the scientific journals that I'll receive the press in my office this afternoon at 3.30. I have an important announcement to make. Anyone not here at 3.30 will be barred. And the publication or company he represents will not be given any further information. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can finish your drinks later. Gentlemen of the press and ladies, it's my pleasure to be able to tell you that I'm in the process of constructing a spaceship. Any questions? Did you say spaceship? That's right. That's what I thought you said. 
I knew the drinks weren't that strong. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Crowder, is this spaceship under construction now? It is. You've solved the problem of motive force then? No, sir. Well, what sort of... You mean you have no means of propulsion for this spaceship? That problem is not solved as yet. <laughs> oh, it will be! That's why I called you in this afternoon. I want you to announce that I have $100,000 in cash, waiting for the man or woman who first brings me the basic idea for such a motor. I'll supply all equipment for research and construction, and I'll see that the rights of the inventor are protected and more than adequate royalties will be paid him or her. That's all I have to say now. Mr. Crowder, one more question, please. Yes? You have a name for this spaceship yet? No, not yet. Well, then let me suggest one. Yes? Crowder's Folly. <laughs> quiet. All of you, quiet. <laughs> what is your paper? The Daily Times, sir. Miss Holmes, inform the company police that under no circumstances is any representative of the Daily Times ever to be allowed on company property again. Strike that paper from the list of those to be invited to future conferences. This episode, announced by Fred Collins, was written by Nelson Bond, starred Joe DeSantis, Brad Richards, Louis Van Ruten, John McGovern, and Guy Sorrell. I remember when I was starting, you see, I started the American Academy at a relatively late age. I remember being given tickets to a broadcast at NBC. They had audiences then on live broadcasts. And I remember sitting there and looking at all these actors who were in this show and thinking... Isn't it terrible, all these poor actors picking up maybe $10, $15 between plays? I didn't realize <laughs> the financial advantages of radio. So I went into the theater, and I stayed in the theater for about three, four years. I, I played, uh, as a matter of fact, I played in Hartford in The Patriots mm -hmm. the, uh, by Sidney Kingsley. It's in the Bushnell Memorial Auditorium, which was a pretty large house. Yeah, and still, still is. is. <laughs> And uh, then when I came back from that, I went into radio, and I stayed in radio pretty much for about 12 years, uh, and I didn't do any theater, and then I went back into the theater and out of it and back in, and I'm going in again now. It was Crowder's folly, but the word of what he wanted circulated to the far corners of the globe. It was known in the white ice block huts of the Eskimos and in the grass-thatched villages of Central Africa, as well as places less remote. And the Crowder office became the mecca and the heaven for the lunatic fringe of humanity. Their blueprints and scale models clogged its corridors. I told you I don't want these people in my office till they're screened. Now get out, get out! Uh, every time I open that door, they surge in like a tidal wave. I have a progress report for you, sir. The ship is finished as far as we can go, Mr. Crowder. Certain additional construction can't be done now because it depends on the shape and mass of the engine, on the type of fuel, on the weight of that fuel. I see, all right. Lay off everybody we don't need. I've ordered that. Uh, Mr. Crowder, is it possible that no one will turn up with a motor? That's the one thing that's not possible. He will come. Money and determination will buy anything. Close the door on your way out. Yes, sir. Miss Holmes, order the proper department to put a name on the forward end of the ship. 
I want letters in pure gold one foot high. The name of the ship is Crowder's Folly. Get it done today. The sun came up in the morning, and the sun set at night, glinting rose on the silver sheen of the hollow ship's skin as it lay in the yard. The golden letters on the prow spelled out the fury of Crowder for the world to see. A staff of 50 were employed, as time went on, in taking rust preventative measures to ensure the ship's well-being. The staff of 50 worked in three shifts around the clock, armed with oil cans and grease cans and other containers and sprayers of preservatives. In a year... The first experiment seemed ready to bear fruit, and a test was held. The atomic fission motor. In exactly 45 seconds now, we'll hold the test, Mr. Crowder. The sound you hear is our generators here, building up power to supply the motor by remote control. If this needle goes round to the part of the dial marked in red, there'll be an explosion. Are there any questions, sir? Proceed with the tests. Watch the needle, sir. 8,000. 8,500. 9,000. 10. 11. 12. 15. That's an overload now, sir. 18. 20. I don't know how much more it can... What happened? The generator blew out. What kind of incompetency? I beg your pardon, sir. The motor blew up. What are you talking about? I would have heard... You see, sir, it takes a while for the vibrations of an explosion to travel three miles and then reach through 15 feet of concrete. I see. Well, there are other experiments in progress. Let me know when they're ready for testing. Yes, sir. Mr. Crowder, the inventor of that motor had to be right with it, of course, during the tests. He had a family. The fool knew what he was doing. He understood the danger. He was paid enough to be able to afford insurance. The cost of insurance on such a project was prohibitive, sir. Well, if his wife was thrifty, she saved out of what he earned this last year. His salary was relatively small, sir. Most of the money went for the research. He should have demanded an adequate salary. I haven't stated on money. The fool failed. I have no further responsibility. Yes, sir. You want us to continue screening applicants? Of course. All right. Make a settlement on the widow. And don't turn anyone away if he seems to have the remotest possibility of success. I'm telling you, my man will come. Money and determination... We'll buy anything. And strangely enough, Crowder was right. Because one day there came to his office a stranger. A small man. He looked even smaller in that tremendous room. He was an unusual visitor in that he carried no briefcase fat with blueprints or formulae. He was unusual in that he neither blustered, cowered, nor deferred to his host. He was a pleasant little stranger. Bird-like of eye and movement, bright and smiling. Mr. Crowder, my name is Wilkins. I can power that ship you want. So? Of course, what I have in mind won't be anything like that meaningless, huge bullet your engine is built for you. 
Rockets are a foolish waste of time, sir. My motor requires a different sort of vessel. Where are your plans? Right here, in my head. It so happens that I am presently supporting half a dozen people who make the same claims. None of them have been successful. What makes you think your idea will work? Simple enough, sir. A common magnet. Huh? Electromagnetism. Utilization of the force of gravity, or its opposite in this case, counter-gravity. Oh, no. Oh, thank you very much. Now, if you'll forgive me now... Uh, just one moment, Mr. Crowder. There's one thing more. This. Now, I've seen pieces of metal before. Thank you. How high from your desk would you say that I'm holding it? I'm very sorry, Mr. Wilkins. Now, do you want to leave or do you want to be escorted out? Now, this will only take a second, sir. How high from your desk would you say that I'm holding this piece of metal? A foot and a half, I'd say. And if I let go, then in less than a second, a fraction of a second, it should fall to your desk. Now, look, I don't want the surface of that desk marred. What will it be? You see, I have let go of the metal, is that right? Good Lord. Hmm. Many seconds ago, it should have crashed to the desk, am I right? Well, this is incredible. Well, if you want to speak to me anymore, I'll be right outside. But it hasn't fallen. That's right, sir. It hasn't fallen. It floats in the air. That's right, sir. It floats in the air. How do you do it? Why don't you call your engineers and ask them? I'll wait outside. Miss Holmes, get me my engineers. Immediately. All right, Mr. Wilkins, you're quite right. The piece of metal is apparently counter-gravity. And my engineers can give me no explanation. Thank you, sir. Now, what do you want? For my services? Yes. You've already set the price. To build a pilot model based on this sample, no great expenditure, a hundredth of the cost of your behemoth sitting out there in your building yard. Three other things. A workshop, expert mechanical assistance... And an answer to one question. What is your question? Why do you want so much to build this ship? Frankly, because I love power. Because I'm ambitious. I want to be the first to conquer space. Because if I can do it, it'll make me greater, richer, stronger than any man has ever been. I want to be the master, not only of one world, but of worlds. Mm, that's an honest answer, but is it the only one? You see those letters in gold on the prow of my ship? Crowder's Folly, that's what they named it. That's what they think of me. I want to cram those words down their petty little throats and let them eat mud. That's another answer. And that's all? That is as far as your thinking goes? What other answer is there to your question? There's my own answer. I want to leave this planet and go elsewhere, to Mars, perhaps, because there are strange wonders yet to be found. Because there will be scarlet sunsets over barren wastes. And in the star-strewn night, the thin, cold air of a dying world stirring in restless sighs across the valleys of the dry canals. <laughs> oh, well... You may laugh out loud if you wish, Mr. Crowder. I would prefer that to the peculiar repressed smile you're now exhibiting. <laughs> you're a very lucky man, Mr. Wilkins, in that you have scientific talent. Because your talents as a poet are inferior and very sentimental. All right, you're a sentimentalist, and I'm a man of action. No matter. We can work together, you and I. 
Your workshop will be ready by morning. I don't need to hear from you again till you have something to show me. If you need to see me, call me day or night. I'll be available. But don't bother me with details, because I probably won't understand what you're talking about anyhow. If you need money or materials or personnel, just tell my engineers. You'll get it, or I'll know the reason why. Now, that's all. Thank you, sir. Miss Holmes, get me my engineers. One show that I particularly like to recall is one that was called You Are There. And I was on every show for the entire run of the series, two and a half years, I was the only actor who was permanently on it, as opposed to the announcers or the Mm -hmm. newsmen. You remember the eruption of Mount Vesuvius then. Of course, yes. (laughs) You've got an education as well as a a career. My steady job was the signature voice, You Are There! Remember that? (laughs) Then sometimes I would do nothing but that. Sometimes I'd do... Small part, sometimes I do medium part, and sometimes I do a lead. I played Napoleon on two separate occasions. One, I think, the uh, embarkation for Elba, and the other one, I don't remember what it was. And then I was William the Conqueror in the Battle of Hastings. And th- those, those were very interesting shows. That was a do. program uniquely suited for radio. It, oh, had yes. a, it had a great run on television, but it really wasn't a no. television show. No, it never it did work properly. No. I recall, for example, listening to... Uh, well, for example, the uh, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, the destruction yeah. of Pompeii, and mm-hmm. an announcer describing it, and then suddenly yelling, "Look out for that cable!" You know that sort of thing. <laughs> and it was marvelous because you could accept this, yes. but you couldn't accept it if obviously you were looking at it and seeing a video trap no. there or something of no, that nature. No, it, it didn't really work. But the interesting thing is that there you had a show that was admirably suited to radio, and it was on the air. CBS kept it on the air for two and a half years, and it never sold commercially. As soon as it went to television for which it was not suited, it sold right away. Mm. Yes, Mr. Crowder? We have 50 men working on preserving that useless hulk out there in the construction yards. Lay them off. Well, the How ship many will other... deteriorate if we do that, sir. Let it rot. Lay them off. Yes, sir. How many other employees are still working for us on the project? About uh, 3,000, sir, including the people working on experimental motors. Get rid of them. Sir? Get rid of them. Mr. Crowder, I... I never thought you'd drop this project. You were so adamant I'm not dropping anything but Deadwood. You saw what Wilkins had to offer. He's my man. And the rest is junk and nonsense. Mr. Crowder, he might fail. We ought to have a minimum of protection against... I say he won't fail. I know the goods when I see it. The rest is nonsense. Several of the experimenters were making much greater progress than I thought was possible. There are great opportunities there. I'm not interested. Not only in the field of spaceships, sir. One man has a motor no bigger than a football, which will drive an automobile 24 hours on four cents worth of fuel. It's almost finished, sir. Not interested. It will be of great benefit to mankind, sir. Your name will go down... My name will go down in history for this spaceship. The profits in such a motor, sir. I have more money now than I even know how to count. And when I make my space flight, I'll have more than that. Yes, sir. You just lay everybody off that isn't needed. Give them two weeks' pay and... My thanks for a thankless job well done. And that's all. Yes, sir, I'll get it done, sir. Oh, one more thing. There's no need to let the folly rot. Dismantle it. Sell the basic materials we don't need. Salvage whatever will be useful to us. That's all. A year's work. Yes. And ten years or twenty years, and I do the same thing. That's why you're an engineer, and I'm an executive. That's why you work for me. Because when I have to... I can be ruthless with my own mistakes. 
When a thing has lost its usefulness to me, I get rid of it. Well? I was just thinking, Mr. Crowder, what would happen to me if my usefulness to you were over? I've worked for you 20 years now. Uh, just don't give me any occasion to consider your usefulness terminated. That oughtn't to be too hard. Hmm. What? Uh, nothing, sir. I'll make the arrangements at once. Well, speak up, man. My name is Jarvis Ustuli. I'm an electronics expert. Oh, yes, I remember. You're the Indian. Come in, come in. But do you want me, sir? I can never... Never mind, Miss Holmes. Just stay outside. Close the door behind you. Sit down, Mr. Ustuli. Thank you, no. I want to give you a gift before I leave. Oh? You leaving? I thought we still needed you. I resigned. Sorry to hear that. I'm told you're a good man. I want you to understand what's behind this gift. Huh? I was working on a power project in my country which would have meant a tremendous rise in the standard of living for millions of my people. I was unable to resist the money you offered. Well, had you resisted, even more money would have been forthcoming. I placed no limit on your worth to me. I understand. But you see, I did not come without a sense of guilt because there was no one in my country who could take my place. I would assume that. And now I discover that what I did was for nothing. The spaceship on which I worked is being dismantled. That's right. So I have been corrupted by you at a whim. I think you have too much power, sir. I think you use your power for evil, selfish purpose. Selfish, yes. Evil, no. Only sentimentality is evil. I think otherwise, and so, in order that you shall not corrupt anyone else, I have this gift for you. Here you are, sir. <coughs> and just one more shot for good measure to make sure you're really dead. Good. Miss Holmes, there's a man on his way out by the name of Job. He's used to be an engineer. He's not to be molested. He probably won't stop at the cashier, so I want a check for six months' salary in advance mailed to his home address. The man uh, showed a certain quality of ruthlessness, which is deserving of recognition. Oh, and uh, have the chief of the company police bring me a new bulletproof vest. This one seems to have been dented in a couple of places. The new spaceship, according to Wilkins' plans, as executed by Crowder's engineers, was finished within four months. It was small, it was shaped like a disc. It gleamed brightly even in the smoky haze of an October sunset. Inside, Crowder and Mr. Wilkins, in a small cubicle at the heart of the machine, sat surrounded by many instruments of a complicated nature. Outside, huge crowds gathered to witness the test. They stirred and murmured, waiting restlessly, as inside the control room of the craft, Wilkins installed the final secret part he had not revealed to those who built his driving apparatus. Well, 
Well, Wilkins, what's holding us up? Nothing new. Oh, sentiment, perhaps. A wish to look once more on Earth's familiar scenes. There. Now the screening is removed. Look. Look at the people out there. Never mind looking out there. Let's leave that thing closed. You're a sentimental fool. Or are you afraid? Or did you decide at the last minute that your invention would work? It will work. Uh, sit down, Mr. Crowder. Uh, thank you. Uh, do me a favor. When I press this button, will you please press the button on the arm of the chair in which you're seated? I'll tell you when. Turn on your motor. I want to hear its roar and feel its tug as we cut loose from Earth's gravity and fly outward into space. <laughs> that might be a moment in which I'd share your sentimentality. Press your button now, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Wilkins, I'm beginning to distrust you. If this is all a hoax, when are we going to take off? You said it's five sharp, and it's two minutes after five now. Well, do we move or don't we? Mr. Crowder, we're already moving. The button you pushed was to nullify the effects of acceleration. If you don't mind, sir, I'd like to open the screen again. Now, if you care to look, see for yourself. Wilkins! We're in space. Look down at the Earth. How far we've come. Why, it's no bigger than a toy balloon. No, a dime. No, a firefly. Man, man, Wilkins, you've done it. Yes. I swore to be the first man to conquer space. And I've done it. It's a triumph of power and ambition. And sentiment. Last sentiment. Your maudlin dreaming would have died unborn except for me. I made this possible, Wilkins. Don't you ever forget that? My capital, my forcefulness, my will. Look out there. Space. Stars that never were seen from Earth. This is only the beginning. We'll build a larger model. One great enough to hold a hundred men, a thousand, and cargo besides. Whoever wants to leave Earth this moment must come to me. I am the master of the planet. <sighs> All right, Wilkins. Turn back now. No. Huh? I said turn back. No. Well, we've we proved the ship can fly now. Now turn back. I want to start work at once in preparation for the long flights to come. Not so. We will go on. What are you doing? Defying me? I'll break your puny little body into pieces. Can you control this ship, Mr. Crowder? Would you like to be stranded out here in space, just adrift in space without control? Would you like that? Turn back. No. What's the matter with you? Are you out of your mind? Oh, I am a sentimentalist, Mr. Crowder. Your money and ambition paved the way, that's true. But sentiment was the vital factor that sent me to you. Sentiment, sir. You see, Mr. Crowder, I wanted to go home. Home? Home? You are out of your mind. You will forgive me if I remove these primitive clothes? Who? Who? Who are you? Oh, it's all right, Mr. Crowder. I hold no special malice toward you. 
There's no need to be so terrified because you've had your first close look at a Martian. You have just heard X-1 presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction. Tonight by transcription, X-1 has brought you The Vital Factor by Nelson Bond, as adapted for radio by Howard Rodman. Featured in the cast were Joe DeSantis, Guy Sorrell, John McGovern, Rant Richards, Louis Van Ruten, Richard Hamilton, and Florence Williams. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. (laughs) Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. Well, you know, we talk about the radio days, Bob, and it seemed like... Now, I listened to radio as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm talking 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 years old. That was during those radio days. And those programs that I listened to as a kid were not... They were some kids' shows, but they were the, the primetime shows for the family, the adults, mm-hmm. whatever. And they didn't seem to be reaching down to me... They said, come on up to our level yeah, and yeah. enjoy what we're doing here. And I think that if the media would try to raise the level of quality entertainment, instead of trying to say, well, this is what all these people want, want, give them something that maybe they don't want, but they're going to find, or they don't know they don't want it. Raise the You have a point. If, we, if everything on television was kind of class, mm-hmm. you'd pick the class. That's right. Instead of now everything is below what I consider class, mm-hmm. and everybody is afraid for money's sake and not making money that they're afraid to do good stuff. As mentioned earlier, Bob Hastings was one of New York's most prominent radio actors. I haven't worked an honest day in my life. <laughs> I've never considered it hard work. I consider it just fun. I have an attitude about actors, which is, I think, who wouldn't like to play cops and robbers all their lives and get paid for it? 
And that's right. all we do. Right. We're just, I think, lucky people who have imaginations and are able to, in some way, put ourselves into whatever we're mm -hmm. doing. And if we make you believe it, and that's why I say radio actors were the best actors I ever worked with, because nobody saw you. If you said, I'm going to kill you, you had to sound like you could do it. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, in television or movies, if you're six foot eight, and you weigh 280 pounds, even if you're a bad actor, you look like you could do it, so you don't have to <laughs> act. <laughs> very funny, going into live television in New York was very different for me. When I lived in New York, I went and did radio shows, and we dressed very nicely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't always wear a shirt and tie. Well, as I grew up, I did. But as a kid, you wore a jacket. Then I get into television, and I saw people dressed really, you know, dungarees and walking around New York City. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was a whole different world. But uh, in the latter days of radio, we didn't rehearse as much. Mm -hmm. In the early days, now, when we did cavalcade of America, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know how many hours we did. You'd have a day previous that you'd work maybe four hours. And then the day of the show, you were there almost all day, and we did it in tuxedos with a full orchestra in a theater. Mm -hmm. For the studio audience. In New York, mm -hmm. yeah, to a studio audience. Well, that, that was, of course, a prestigious program. Yes. And appearance before the studio audience was as important to the sponsor and the station and the I network so. as anything. I guess so, because you look back and you think tuxedos. I can remember playing Audie Murphy's brother and a farm boy in the mud and all, and there we are in our tuxedos <laughs> in front of a microphone. And the ladies dressed. Always uh, the ladies wore evening gowns. gowns. Sure, I bought my first tuxedo because in those days, I think it was $10 or $8 to rent one, and I did enough cavalcades that for 35 I could buy a tux. <laughs> so. Countdown for blast off. X minus 5, 4, 3, 2, X minus 1, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents X minus one. Tonight's story, Nightfall by Isaac Asimov. Ralph Waldo Emerson speculated if the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how would man believe and adore and perceive for many generations the remembrance of the city of God? This was philosophically interesting. But on the edge of the galaxy, a planet swings on its orbit in a cluster of six suns. These suns hang in the sky above. Never less than two shine down through the entire 23.8 hours of the planet's day. 
The yellow light has burned down on the planet continuously, into the past, till the mind of man runneth not to the contrary. Theremon was a reporter for the Saro City Chronicle. He covered them all, from the night police beat to politics to the sports pages. And the city editor wanted him to cover the biggest story of the year, perhaps of all time. It was an interview, a particularly difficult interview. But then, since his first days as a cub, Theremon had specialized in difficult interviews. It cost him bruises, black eyes, and broken bones. But it had gotten him an ample supply of coolness and self-confidence. He didn't expect violence, though, from an astronomer. You're from that newspaper? Well, you've got a lot of gall coming here. Now, look, Dr. Aton, it's only a job. I've read your paper. You've been writing this observatory for two months now. You've attacked me personally. I have nothing to say to you. Well, this is your chance to get your side into the paper. Look, Dr. Aton, I'll give it to you straight. Two months ago, the observatory issued a press statement that the world was coming to an end. Now, that's the same story the cult of the Book of Revelations had been preaching. Now, when a scientist backs that up, it's news. Our conclusions have nothing to do with the cult. The cult is full of superstition and mysticism. We're scientists. You've got the people pretty angry. It doesn't matter. Well, if I can't get the story from you, I'll have to go somewhere else. Go ahead. The paper can be pretty rough on someone who doesn't cooperate, Dr. Aton. Young man, if you're not out of the observatory within five minutes, I shall call the police. Now, get out. The reporter walks down the long hall from the observatory. The light filters through the high, clear story windows. The yellow light of gamma, the brightest of the six suns in the planet's sky. Beta is almost at zenith. Its red light floods the landscape to an unusual orange. The planet sun Alpha is at the antipodes. And now as gamma sinks below the horizon, the red dwarf sun Beta is alone, grimly alone. It's a short drive from the observatory to Saro City, and the red light glares from the highway. The temple of the cult stands hewn from the solid rock of the Dormite Mountains outside the city. And in the inner courtyard stands Sor, the priest of the cult. Woe to the unbelievers! Their souls will rot with the absence of light. Tell me, Your Reverence, what will happen? What are you waiting for here? The day. The day of the coming. It is written in the book of Revelations. It came to pass the sun beta was alone in the sky. And the world was shrunken and cold. And men did assemble in the public squares and highways. Their minds were troubled. And their speech confused. For the souls of men awaited the coming of the stars. And the lip of the cave of darkness passed the edge of Beta. And loud were the cries of men. And there was no light on the surface of the world. And in this blackness, there appeared the stars in countless numbers. And in that moment, the souls of men departed from them. And their abandoned bodies became even as beasts. From the stars then reached down the heavens flame. And where it touched... The cities of the world flamed to destruction, so that of man and all the works of man not remained. So it is written. 
Ernest Canoy adapted this Isaac Asimov short story. In New York at this time with the NBC theater and one of those series, the script came first. It was only when it was scheduled that they went thinking about a director. And the directors, in many cases, were staff people, too. For example, Ed King. Now, Ed was on the staff at NBC. Santos Ortega was Zor, the high priest. Well, I go back to the early uh, 30s in radio. What are some of the other uh, radio shows you did? Well, Ellery Queen. I did Inspector Queen. I originated Inspector Queen and Ellery Queen. That was Ellery Queen's father, as yes. I remember. That was on, I remember, Sunday afternoon. Yes. Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Yes. I thought it was a fine hour show. At least it was for me, because the uh, character of the inspector had so many facets, so many sides. Of course, when they cut it down to half-hour commercial, well, it was quite another thing. You couldn't get all those things into it because, after all, your star and your hero, Ellery. Well, I always felt with someone with a stuff shirt, but that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> then I did Charlie Chan after Ed Begley. I did Perry Mason. I did Bulldog Drummond. Why were you chosen for all the detective roles? I don't know. I'm uh, not a detective fan reader. I really don't know. But I was thinking, I was thinking, of course, when the, uh, when the worst sponsors, you know, the networks had a number of dramatic programs and things of that sort. I had done other broadcasts before 1930. Dr. Sharon, you're the only scientist I could find in the city. Where is everybody? In the hideout. The hideout? Yes, but the place bored me. I wanted to be out here where things are getting hot. I want to see the... Stars the cultists are talking about. Besides, they don't want me at the hideout. I'm too scrawny to survive. What is the hideout? Well, we professors have managed to convince a few people that our prophecy of doom is valid. We've got about 3,000 people. They're supposed to hide where the darkness and the stars can't get at them. We hope they'll survive and leave the records. Survive? Survive what? Well, how true it is, I can't say. But the... The cultists say that every 2,050 years, all the suns disappear. And there is a total darkness, and then they say things called stars appear. Of course, men go mad. They, they mix all this up with a lot of religio-mystic notions. Uh, but that's the central idea. But that's impossible, isn't it? I mean, there are always at least two suns in the sky, most of the time four or five. There aren't now. Only beta. You mean that there is going to be worldwide darkness tomorrow, that all mankind will go violently insane? What's behind that? Well, for one thing, the history of civilization of the world. We have located a series of cycles of civilizations comparable to our own, all of which, without exception, were destroyed by fire at the very height of their culture. But is there any scientific theory behind this which would explain it? Well, the University Observatory finished their calculations two months ago. And tomorrow there will be an eclipse of beta so that the planet will become dark. That eclipse comes every 2,049 years. Darkness. And maybe those mysterious stars that no man has seen. And then madness and the end of civilization. And you expect to live through this at the hideout? They plan to photograph the eclipse and leave the records. And then the rest of mankind will know what to expect. Well, what is there in darkness to drive men mad? 
Have you ever experienced darkness, young man? Well, no, but I know what it is. It's just no light. Oh. Uh, draw the curtain. Why, what for? If we had four or five suns out there, we might want to cut the light down for comfort, but with only beta... Ah, that's the point. Just draw the curtain and then come here and sit down. All right. I can't see you. Feel your way. But I can't see you. I can't see anything. Do you like it? Oh, it's awful. The walls seem... They seem to be closing in on me. I, I, I keep wanting to push them away. All right, all right. Draw the curtain back again. Oh, the light, the light. I... Oh, do you have a drink? Right here. Now, that was just a dark room. Yes, but it wasn't really so bad. You're afraid? Just darkness could do that? This isn't just a metaphysical theory, young man. It's promulgated from observed data. Well, come with me. Where? The locked wall down the corridor. Um, were you at the Saro City Centennial Exposition two years ago? I was overseas on assignment. Well, you remember hearing about the tunnel of mystery that broke all records in the amusement area? Oh, yes. Wasn't there some fuss about that? The uh, anti-vice society had it shut down. Oh, it was shut down, all right. But the blue noses had nothing to do with it. That tunnel was nothing but a mile-long passage through darkness. You rode in a little car, and it took 15 minutes to get through. Oh, it was very popular while it lasted. Popular? Well, there's a, there's a fascination to be frightened when it's part of a game. Absence of light is one of the instinctive human fears. People came out of that 15 minutes of darkness shaking and half dead with fear. Oh, weren't there some deaths? Oh, bad hearts, but that wasn't the big danger. Now, uh... Which key is this? Ah. Where are we going? You'll see. No, the uh, heart attacks were actually good for business, but uh, there was something else. Here, I'll show you. I, uh, I want you to see somebody. Latimer. Latimer. Go, go away. Latimer, I want you to meet somebody. This is Mr. Perriman. No, no, go away. Hello. He's pushing me. Make him stop pushing me. Go away. I'm not touching him. What's wrong? Latimer is afraid, aren't you? The walls, they're falling in on me. The walls, I've got to get out. I've got to get out. Let me out. You can't I... go out, Latimer. It's, it's all right. I've got to get out. Let me out. Let me out. Let me out. At, uh, at sleeping period, we have to give him a shot of morphine. Otherwise, he'd bat his brains against the wall. What's wrong with him? Nothing. Nothing but 15 minutes in the darkness of the tunnel of mystery. Oh, that's impossible. One person out of ten came out of the tunnel that way. 
That's why we had it shut down. But why should darkness do that? It's obvious men cannot exist without light. Longer periods of darkness would obviously be fatal. The scientific theory is that the consciousness of light is necessary for mental activity. Please, doctor, let me outside. Let me out, please. I, I can't breathe. They're pushing me. They're always pushing me. I can't stand here. <laughs> well, there you are, Fetterman. That's what 15 minutes of darkness will do. Man just wasn't built to operate without light. There are always at least two suns in the sky, most of the time more. Just 15 minutes of darkness. Now, look out of that window. Imagine darkness everywhere. No light as far as you can see. Black. Everything black. And uh, stars, whatever they are, can you conceive it? Oh, your mind wasn't built for that conception. When the real thing comes, you will go mad. Completely and permanently. There is no question of it. Tomorrow, there won't be a city left standing in the world. Why should the cities be destroyed? <laughs> if you were in darkness, what would you want more than anything else? What would it be that every instinct would call for? Light. And how would you get light? I don't know. You'd burn something. They've got to have light. They've got to burn something. And every city in the world will go up in flames. Well, uh, shall we go back to my office, Mr. Fetterman, and uh, have another drink? Through the skies, the red sun beta shines alone. The wind howls across the city. It is cold colder than man can remember. And as the hour approaches, the reporter goes out and speaks to the man in the street. Excuse me, uh, I'm from the Chronicle. I'd like to talk to you. A reporter, huh? Well, my name is Pallet. Two L's. Remember the two L's, huh? Where are you going now? Home for supper. Or how about, uh, well, I mean, what are you going to do tonight? Oh, you mean about this star stuff? Look, I'll tell you, mister, I got nothing against religion, see? But it don't stand to reason that the end of the world is going to come boom like that. It just don't stand to reason. Have you read what the scientists say? Nah, I don't read stuff like that. Only the headlines. Well, how about the cult? Well, now, like I say, I've got nothing against religion. But you don't believe them either. Oh, they've always been shouting about doom and sin. Listen, when you've been around as long as I have, you get to know the score. It's all right to preach Judgment Day is coming and all that, but huh, just the same, I'm putting money in the bank. How about darkness? About what? How would you feel if there were no light? Hey, you crazy. How could there be no light? Well, suppose all the suns went down at once. Suppose everything was black. That's crazy. What's the use of supposing something like that? It couldn't happen. It's crazy. Well, that's all. Thank you. Sure, sure. Oh, look, Mr. Remember, pallet with two L's. <laughs> All this talk of scientific explanation. It's sinful, that's what it is. Are you a member of the cult, sir? Sure I am. Been a member since I was a boy. And Daddy was a member, too. I I've seen the books. It's all written down in the books. Don't you believe the scientist's explanation? Don't need it. 
going to save my immortal soul. I'm going to stay on the mountaintop in a white robe while the stars came away to glory. Blessed be the stars. Amen. What are the stars? The glory, the, the breath of the heavens, the spirit of the ultimate. That's what they are. The observatory has announced that it intends to take pictures of the stars. Blasphemy. I sold my house, I gave all my money to the poor, won't need it anymore. I'm going to heaven with the stars. Glory, glory, going with the stars. I think the last radio I did in New York, I had a slight running part on Pepper Young's family. And mm -hmm. I... Uh, I think we taped those, uh, must have, because that was in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Mason Adams, of course, played Pepper Young. But I think we taped them in those days, in the late 50s. Well, tape came in with Bing Crosby in the late 40s. He started okay, doing the Philco uh, broadcast. No. And that, See, and my mind is gone. I'm getting so old now, <laughs> the mind is shot. We used to have a lot of laughs. I enjoyed it. The people were great. We, we worked hard, but we also had a lot of fun. It seems mm -hmm. like when you did radio, the first 25 minutes were who knew the latest joke. <laughs> you sit down before you start reading. You mean when you first were called for That's the right. first when reading you'd, you'd and all that? That's right, sit down for the first reading uh -huh. and before the director's passing out the scripts. And, mm -hmm. and I, who had no great memory, used to write down the tags of the jokes and go home and see, can I remember the rest of the story? <laughs> the reporter checks the stock exchange, the stores, business at a standstill. Doesn't pay to buy anything today, not if the world is going to end tomorrow. There are predictions of economic collapse in the financial section, layoffs at the factories on the edge of the city, and through the streets the people will mill and turn, unsure, crying in fear or shouting with bravado. The story isn't here in the city, and so as the hour approaches, the reporter goes again to the observatory, high in the hills. Now look, Dr. Aton, if you are right, if the world is going to be destroyed, what is the difference if I stay here and observe and take notes? Oh, nothing, I suppose. You will be in the way. We have work to do. If I stay out of the way. Hello, hello. Oh, this place is like a morgue. It's freezing outside. The wind is enough to hang icicles on your nose. Beta doesn't seem to give any heat at all, the distance it is. Why aren't you in the hideout, Sharon? Me? <laughs> I'm part of the race that isn't worth perpetuating. Uh, who's got a bottle? We know alcohol today. Be too easy to get my men drunk. I can't afford to tempt them. All right, Thurman, you can stay. Keep out of the way. Thank you, Doctor. Well, gentlemen, I think it's time we took our positions. The observatory dome is up these stairs. After you. Ah! What is that? Up in the dome, quick. What is it? It's the plates. The photographic plates, they're all smashed. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> a cultist. He's going for the telescope. After him. All right, I've got him. Let go. No. Let go must be destroyed. It must be. Yeah. It's all right. He didn't harm anything. Let him up. Well, that's the high priest I was talking to him yesterday. All right. What do you want? Nothing that you would give me of your own free will. I made a bargain with the cult to give me certain data that you had. In return, I promise to prove the essential truth of the creed. There was no need to prove that. It stands proven by the book of Revelations. I offered scientific backing for you believers. You made of the darkness and the stars a natural phenomenon and removed all its real significance. That was blasphemy. The facts exist. Your facts are a fraud and a delusion. How do you know? I know. I suppose you think in trying to warn the world against the menace of madness, we are placing souls in jeopardy, huh? Well, we haven't succeeded... If that makes you feel better. Your devilish instruments must be destroyed. 
We obey the will of the stars. Someone call the police in Cerro City. There's no time for that. Uh, let me handle this. The eclipse is only a few minutes away. Look, you. Will you give your word of honor to cause no trouble? I will not. Listen. Just as soon as the eclipse starts, we're going to take you and put you in a closet with the door closed, and you will stay there. Then you won't see the darkness, and you won't see the stars. And that means the loss of your immortal soul, according to the cult. All right. Will you give your word of honor? You have it. You will all be damned for your deeds of today. Look! Look at Beta! The eclipse has started. You can see the blackness against Beta. Get busy on those cameras. Check the exposures very carefully. You're shaking, Mr. Theremin. Yes, I don't feel very well. You're not losing your nerve. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just not used to it. You could probably make the hideout. I have been assigned to cover a story. I intend to cover it. Oh, professional honor? Yes. Yes. Alasofanet Radrock. Alasofanet. What is that? The cultist. That's the book of Revelations. I don't understand it. He is chanting some old cycle language. The book of Revelations was originally written in it. There are probably two million people in Cerro City who are trying to join the cult. One gigantic revival. How do the cultists manage to keep the book of Revelations going from cycle to cycle? If everyone goes mad, who wrote the book? There are some people who don't see the stars. The blind, those who drink themselves into a stupor, and children to whom the world as a whole is too new and too strange for them to be frightened at stars and darkness. They would have memories. And that, combined with the confused, incoherent babbling of the mad, formed the basis for the Book of Revelations. Oh, the cult will be riding high down there in the city. I, I hope they make the most of it. Dr. Sharon, I, I just heard from the hideout on the private line. Oh, they're in trouble? They are safe, but the city is... It's a shambles. You have no idea. Well, it'll get worse. But what are you shaking about, Dr. Aiton? How do you feel? You don't understand. The cultists are rousing the people to storm the observatory, promising them immediate entrance into grace, promising them salvation, promising them anything. How long till the total eclipse? An hour. Well, it's a gamble. It will take time to get a mob out here. If the darkness comes first, we're all right. Oh, look at Beta. It's cut in half. Half of it is black. Yes, it's getting darker. An interesting phenomenon. Oh, my... My collar is suddenly tight. Are you having any difficulty in breathing? No, no, why? Difficulty in breathing is one of the first <clears throat> symptoms... We have experimented. I'm, I'm cold. Seems to be getting colder. Yes, so we'd better keep our minds on something else. One of the astronomers has a theory about the stars. He thinks they may be suns that are too far away to see in the light. He developed a fantasy about a planet revolving around one sun. <laughs> it's a mathematical possibility. Of course, there couldn't be any life... Part of the planet would always be dark and without light. Well, it's... it's obvious. Without light, there can't be any life. It's time for the artificial light. We can't read the instruments. Artificial light? 
One of the researchers at the university worked it out. It's uh, animal grease packed around a wick. Here, I light one. Why, it's beautiful. Yellow light. After four hours of red. It's beautiful. Light. Light. Time would prohibit you from doing anything else. As I said earlier, you would do two, three, sometimes four shows a day, seven days a week, and that would take you into the early morning hours. I didn't do my first play on Broadway until, oh, well after I had been in radio for about 15 years. I want to ask you, was there one day, one moment when suddenly you, you realized that perhaps all of this might be coming to an end as far as radio acting is concerned, and where were you? Were well, you uh, yeah, <laughs> watching sure. television in the bar somewhere? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, we saw the handwriting on the wall. I never could quite believe that television would replace radio dramatically. Uh, I thought it was uh, well off into the future because of prohibitive costs of production, etc. I was always hopeful that radio drama would remain. Unfortunately, we began to see the demise of radio. Shows were lopped off like a herd of cattle going to slaughter. It got down to like four shows being left and all of them were soap operas. At the time I was fortunate enough to have been involved in two of them, one of which was the second Mrs. Burton and the other was Rosemary. And then Rosemary went and the second Mrs. Burton was one of the last to go. So I made the transition from radio to television, fortunately, by going into the first daytime dramatic series called The First Hundred Years. That was the very first daytime show in television. And I did that for about a year, year and a half, and then went right from that into Search for Tomorrow, where I've been for almost 23 years. <laughs> You're in a real rut. But along with that, television, I find a lot more freedom to do other things, which I have done. The dome is quiet. The priest in his yellow robe sways slowly as his lips move in the ancient tongue. Over and over he whispers the invocation to the stars. The technicians hunch over the instruments and the sky gradually turns a horrible deep purple red and the air grows denser. Dusk, like a palpable entity, enters the room and the dancing circle of yellow light about the torches etches itself into ever-sharper distinction against the ever-gathering grayness beyond. Outside, Beta is a mere smoldering splendor, taking a last look at the world. The western horizon, in the direction of the city, is lost in darkness, and along the highway to the observatory surges a menacing, shadowy mass. Mod from the city, they're coming. How long till total eclipse? Fifteen minutes. They'll be here in five. We'll hold them off. Come on, Fetterman, downstairs. But, but, but there's, there's no light down there. We have to block the door. Come on. I can't... I can't breathe. I can't go down there. Take a torch. We'll take light with us. Come on. Come on. 
Aiton. Aiton. I'm here. Did you bar the door? They won't get in. All right now, everybody. One minute till totality. One minute. Just before totality, I'm changing the plate. That will leave one of you for each camera. You know all about times of exposure. Now remember, don't try to look for good shots. And if you feel yourself going, get away from the camera. It's dark. It's getting dark. Sharon. Sharon, where are you? I can't see you, Sharon. I'm right here. 30 seconds. Ah! Look out. The priest. I can't see him. And the wicked shall perish in the souls of the true believers. Shall be transported in glory to the stars. You can see him against the torch. Don't let him get to the torch. The stars that reach down a heavenly flame. And where it touched the cities of the world, flame to utter destruction. Grab him! You shall not blaspheme! The world must be destroyed by the stars! It must be! Let me go! I'll take care of this. Five seconds to totality. Four, three, two, one. The sky is black, and through it shine the stars. 30,000 minute suns shine down in a soul-searing splendor. It is more frightening in its awful indifference than the bitter wind that shivers across the horrible, cold, bleak world. The star. The stars. The stars. Oh, no! It's dark. 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 The walls. The walls are coming in on me. They're coming in. Light. 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 Darkness. Forever. Light. Forever. And ever. Light. And the walls are breaking in. We did not know. We did not know. We did not know. On the horizon in the direction of the city, a crimson glow begins growing. A thousand fires strengthen in brightness that is not the glow of the sun. A million fires as a world mad in the darkness screams in terror for the light. The night has come again. You have just heard X-1 presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction. Tonight by transcription... X-1 has brought you Nightfall by Isaac Asimov. Adapted for radio by Ernest Kinoy. Featured in the cast were Wendell Holmes, John Larkin, Santos Ortega, Mercer McLeod, Alan Collins, Bob Hastings, and Roy Fent. Your narrator was Floyd Mack. Fred Collins speaking. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. It's groomed for your interests. Weekday, NBC Radio. Mm-hmm.
Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. In April of 1956, X-1 moved to Tuesdays, then back to Wednesdays in September. But radio ratings slipped further. X-1 managed to hang on, airing through 1957 and into January of 1958. When the show closed on Thursday, January 9th, the only other dramatic program airing in primetime on NBC was Amos and Andy. In your opinion, when did radio begin to decline? As television began to ascend. You have much of a chance to go into television as many of your peers did at that time. Uh, I did the first dramatic show that CBS ever did. <laughs> you were a real pioneer in every sense of the word. Yeah, it was a 12-minute thing. There was only one stationary camera. You couldn't move it to follow the actors, you know. It was like almost like a stage yeah. production. I think it was the late 40s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I remember there were only about 200 experimental television sets in the city at that time. They were programming these things experimentally, you know. And I remember the director took us over to his house afterwards, and there was a fight on television. It was a championship fight of some kind. I forget who was fighting. But the only way you could tell the uh, difference between the two boxers was one had white shorts and the other had dark shorts. The images were so unclear. Yeah, this had to go back probably to the late 30s, I would think. That would seem to me late 40s would... No, it came back. It, it was right after I came back from England, uh-huh. which was in 1942. Mm-hmm. Oh, I said late 40s. Yeah. I was yeah. wrong. Yes, you're right about that. Well, at any rate, you did make it successfully over into television. You're uh, very much a part of the television scene today. And what part do you play on Somerset, the uh, daytime NBC soap? I play Vic Kirby, kind of a mysterious, interesting handyman figure who could be up to no good or not. <laughs> Joseph Julian moved into television after a bout with the Red Scare. Bob Hastings did a ton of TV specifically on General Hospital, and later cartoon work, eventually becoming the voice of Commissioner Gordon on Batman the Animated Series. Well, you did a lot of television. Tell us about some of the TV things. Gee, I think the first television I did was experimental in 39 in NBC in New York, in the RCA building, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. where the radio... Yeah, RCA building. Mm -hmm. Before I went in the service in 43, I did a Dumont show with a young lady, Lilius McClellan. We used to sing for 15 minutes on Sunday nights. I think... 30 people had sets, and then I don't know, I used to do um, U.S. Steel. I did a lot with Alex Siegel, who happened to like my work. As a matter of fact, a lot of people don't realize that the original No Time for Sergeants was a TV show done on the U.S. Steel Hour. Oh, it was. And it went Mm -hmm. from TV to Broadway to uh, being a movie. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, Goodyear Playhouse, Craft Theater. First soap opera I ever did was Search for Tomorrow back in the 50s. But that wasn't the end for X-1. Have you heard of the new science called cybernetics? It concerns man's efforts to develop a perfect thinking machine. A robot electronic brain that will not only do man's work, but even do his thinking for him. A robot that is almost human. In the early 1970s, Renaissance Radio featured and then Monitor, still running in its third decade, brought X-1 back for a trial broadcast. No, it's not impossible. Not impossible at all. As a matter of fact, it's very, very possible. Next month on X-1, you'll meet one of these robots. This one can do anything. Anything at all. He can even fall in love. This is Fred Collins inviting you to join us Saturday, August 24th for a story called Almost Human. Next on X-1. Monitor itself would go off the air in January of 1975. For men and women like Larry Haynes, Hyman Brown offered them a chance to do new radio in 1974. It will come into play on the next episode of Breaking Walls. Hy Brown, who used to do uh, In a Sanctum, has revived radio, or is, is trying to, with a show called the uh, CBS Radio Mystery Theater, I guess it is, which in format basically is, is kind of like the old In a Sanctum shows. It's more believable now and less ethereal than it was as in a sanctum and uh, we're doing mystery shows i've done two of them now i think they should catch on i think there is a market for radio drama is there any problem in adjusting to well, radio I, I, drama I, again? I felt like i had never done a radio show in my <laughs> life because it had been 15 years and i went in with great trepidation and said my goodness uh, you know this uh, i'm gonna have a script in my hand now how will i handle it <laughs> but it all came back and it was fun boy i really enjoyed it and so do all of us who were from the old days, you know, Jackson Beck and Ralph Bell, and it was like old class reunion. It was yeah. marvelous. Have techniques changed? I'm talking technically as well as perhaps acting styles. No, acting styles haven't changed. The technical end of broadcasting uh, has changed a bit. Things are more electronic now than they were in the old days of radio. Most of your sound effects were done manually, and now they use cartridges. It's kind of a hard adjustment for us because we used to kind of time our dialogue with the sound effects man, and that was helpful. Do you have a live manual yeah. sound effects man there as well? Oh, yeah. You know, things like opening and closing a door and footsteps. You Carpets uh, still haven't arrived. <laughs> <in> <laughs> <room>. <laughs> That'd be awful. It always amazed me how little carpeting was used in the old <laughs> yeah. days. Because everything was footsteps. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. it has to be. You've yeah. got to be able to well, paint Well, that's the only picture. way you can convey movement from sure. one place to another. Sure. Are you going to go back to your gangster rules again now, Larry? Or are you going to well, try to avoid uh, that? <laughs> this format doesn't lend itself too much to gangsters as we well, know, you know them. Well, you know, heavies, uh, let's say. No, they're not heavies. Most of the roles on, uh, if you're playing a lead, 
are sympathetic rather than mm-hmm. the villainous Seven, type. Eight, nine, and that's another ten. For a grand total of $53.61. Uh, huh. I didn't hear anybody drive up. No. Nobody did. Oh. Uh, ran out of gas, huh? Yeah, you could say that. How far to walk? Far enough. Boy, what a night to be... Oh, boy. A live one. Right. And don't push, Sonny, or I'll blow you away. For $53.61? For nothing. Okay, okay. I'll play. Watch that cannon, Bandito. My daddy once told me never point a gun at a guy unless you intend to use it. Good advice. He ever tell you to shut up? Yeah, I... So I you better it. shut up. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's vacation season, so we hit the road. But in order to do that, we'll have to gas up with some of radio's best and examine radio shows taking place at America's gas stations. We'll listen to episodes, hear interviews, and learn more about the intimate details from radio's history. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine. On the interview front... Jackson Beck, John Gibson, Larry Haynes, Mary Jane Higby, Joseph Julian, Mandel Kramer, Jan Miner, Arnold Moss, and Guy Sorrell spoke with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Hyman Brown and Nelson Olmsted were with Spurvac. For more information, go to spurvac.com. Bob Hastings spoke with Chuck Shaden. Hear this full chat at speakingofradio.com. Ernest Canoy was with both Franz Stoddard for PBS and Walden Hughes for Yesterday USA. Ray Bradbury spoke with Jerry Hendigas. And Santos Ortega was with Richard Lamparski. Selected music featured in today's episode was Ill Wind by the John Buzon Trio, Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets, and Satan Takes a Holiday by Jack Malmsteen. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcast and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon please go to PassDaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls episode 118 will open up an Americana miniseries at the gas station. This episode will be available beginning August 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcast and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime... Give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. 
So until August 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 117, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>